Hi, everyone. Before we get started with the episode, I want to take a moment to address the United States Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade on June 24th. This decision, which stripped away the right to a safe and legal abortion, also stripped away a woman's right to choose what is best for themselves, anyone with a uterus, their right to have autonomy over their own body and to make the decisions that are best for themselves and their lives. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all people, which we have already seen with abortion bans and restrictions in countries like Poland and Malta. This decision has dire consequences, and it could have, in fact, I would say that it will have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions within the United States, including marriage equality. I encourage all of you, American or otherwise, to learn more about what you can do to help, whether you need access to safe reproductive medical health care, or you want to help provide it, you want to help with funds or anything else, other resources that you wanted to provide to people who need access to reproductive health care. Podcasters have come together to provide an excellent resource. You can visit podvoices.help for details. That's P-O-D-V-O-I-C-E-S dot help. As a woman, a mother, a mother of daughters, and a member of the LGBTQ community, I urge you to speak up. Please take care of yourself. Please help us spread the word. We must stand together now. We must be loud because we are either going to win this together or lose it together. Again, visit podvoices.help to learn more. Hi, everybody. Heather Vickery here, and thanks so much for tuning in to the Brave Files podcast. As you may or may not know, the Brave Files is taking a summer break. We will be off the months of July and August, and we are bringing you some of our most treasured favorite episodes from the past four and a half years. So we're replaying one of those past episodes today. I hope you enjoy it. Share it with everyone you know. And we will be back with brand new content in September. Have a great summer, everyone. Persistent, lucky, and listening. You're listening to The Brave Files, where we share stories from people who've stepped out of fear and into bravery in every possible way. What we know for sure is that when we choose bravely on purpose, we choose bigger, we win bigger, and it's contagious. It's our hope that these stories connect with you and encourage you to embrace bravery in every possible way, day after day. Together, we can build a movement that enriches both our lives and our communities. The Brave Files is brought to you by Vickery & Co., a success and leadership coaching firm dedicated to helping you build a life and a business that you are absolutely in love with. Vickery & Co. offers group programs, membership communities, one-on-one coaching, VIP days, corporate trainings, workshops, keynote speaking, and so much more. Visit vickeryandco.com to get all the details. Welcome, everybody. My guest today is Brian Johnson. Brian has spent nearly two decades as a leader in the fight for social justice, and today he serves as the CEO for Equality Illinois. Brian's passion for fighting for equality started when he served as a first grade teacher as a Teach for America Corps member. After seeing firsthand how systematic injustice impacted the lives of passionate and capable children, 
he committed his career to fighting to make sure that America lived up to its promise to be a fair and equitable country. Brian and his husband, Toby, are very dear friends of mine. And Brian joins us today from downtown Chicago. I could not possibly be more excited to welcome him as the very first guest on The Brave Files. Brian, welcome. Hi there. Hi. <laughs> How are you today? I'm good. Excellent. Well, I know there's a lot going on, certainly in the world and in the country and in Illinois. So thank you for spending a few minutes with us here on the podcast. I'm excited to do it. Yay. So I'm going to let you tell our listeners just a little bit about your background and who you are, and then we'll we'll just chat. You know, I think you mentioned it a little bit in the, in the bio about how pivotal that experience was teaching first grade uh, for me was. So uh, let me just give it some context. I am, um, you know, I've grown up in this uh, wonderful home, this uh, military home. So I, I moved around a lot. My father was in the army and I kind of got a chance to see how how great America was. And after attending lots of public schools and in great neighborhoods, I, I got a chance to go to Princeton, which for my family, you know, where I had a grandmother who was, you know, had been a single mom raising two kids with nothing but a high school education. This was just a manifestation of the American dream. And so when I graduated from college, I wanted to serve my country like my father did, but wanted to do it in a different way. And I signed up to teach in a 100% low-income, 100% African-American community on the north side of town in Baton Rouge. And it just, it really widened open my eyes and uh, and really lit a fire underneath me. I mean, before that point, I, I knew about injustice in America, but I knew about it from this abstract way. I used to say that I thought I was a good progressive because I had read my Jonathan Kozel. But... I I hadn't actually built deep, meaningful relationships with people who were honestly at the at the far end of, of systemic oppression in this country. And so here I was in Baton Rouge getting to know these amazingly dynamic and wonderful five and six-year-old kids and their phenomenal families, and just looking out on a community that wasn't giving them what I thought they deserved and wasn't actually living up to American promise. Just made me angry. It made me angry for my kids. It made me angry that the the promise that America gave me was not consistently being given others. And so I decided I wasn't going to walk away from this. Whatever this was, I was always going to fight to make sure America lived up to her promise of herself for everybody. Um, and that has taken a, a winding path, but <laughs> it really is rooted in that first grade classroom in, uh, in, in Baton Rouge. I I love that. You are such an, an inspiration to me on so many levels, but and to so many people. I mean, really, we're all we're all pretty lucky that there's a, a Brian C. Johnson out in the world. Um, yeah, yeah, it's true. So it's interesting. When I was working with Brian and Toby, when I was working with you guys on your wedding, um, you were like behind the scenes getting ready to take over what I think is a, a pretty cool gig as CEO for Equality Illinois. I had no idea until like what the, the month after. Is that when... Yeah, yeah. That's, actually, it was two weeks after our wedding day uh, that I that I started as the CEO here at Equality Illinois. So that was kind of fun. It pops up in my in my email, and I was like, "Wait, ho, wait, what? What's that? That's yeah. I know him." <laughs> so um, it's pretty pretty exciting for me um, just to watch you step into this role and be so so powerful. So I'd love to know a little bit about the work you're doing with Equality Illinois and more more so like what are the defining moments? What are you seeing out there that um, is changing you and that you feel like you're part of changing? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I took over this role 
after, gosh, nearly 20 years in, in working directly in race and class justice and then around schools, uh, because I was really concerned about a rising conversation that I kept hearing about the belief that we might, we might be done in LGBTQ civil rights. And I know that civil rights that are hard, hard fought and hard won are also hard kept and we needed to stay vigilant. And I knew there were members of our community that uh, marriage, while meaningful, did not, did not change their life the next day, uh, that there were so many other issues that we were facing. And so when I started uh, in my role, I spent the first three months just traveling around the state, having hundreds of conversations. And I, I, I brought with me the question that civil rights organizer Ruby Sales used to ask, which was, where does it hurt? You know, I didn't ask people to tell me their policy ideas. I didn't ask people to listen to my uninformed vision of where we needed to go. I just asked people to tell me their stories. What were they afraid of? When were they hurt? What were they hopeful for? If they had a magic wand that can change the lives of LGBTQ people within a five-mile radius of our conversation, what would it be? And I just collected story after story after story. And after a while, these threads came together to form this fabric, the deep understanding of where our community is in pain. And so for us, we heard lots of stories. I mean, I, I couldn't sum them all up sure. here, but I can tell you they, they disproportionately fell into a couple of buckets, right? We, we heard stories around people being treated unequally and having unequal access to high quality education. We heard stories about people being afraid for their own public safety. We heard stories about people not having access to medical care and health care that was adequate, let alone affirming. And we heard stories of people being mistreated in the criminal justice system. And so when we stepped back and said, as the statewide LGBTQ civil rights organization, how do we need to respond to this? And we said, clearly we need to have some policy work. We've always had policy work and that's what we need to do with a focus on education, criminal justice and healthcare. But we've got to make sure that we're building this world that, that we don't always have to figure out what the policy problem is. Uh, uh, yeah. There's a state rep who says that Equality Illinois' new direction is not just to put out the fire in front of you, but to build a fireproof house at the same time. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So we've launched an effort to get more LGBTQ people into positions of public leadership so that we are at the tables where decisions are made about our community. And we've launched efforts to really build the civic power of LGBTQ community groups across the state so that whenever there is an issue that we can use our muscle from from Carbondale up here to Chicago, you know, from from Peoria through Springfield down in the Metro East to make sure that that we are using that muscle to, to advance equality. Suffice it to say, there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are, are working hard on the forefront. What would you say the biggest struggle has been with policy and with the things that you've been working so hard? And you guys have done some really badass things. Um, yeah you know, in the last two years, but what would you say the biggest struggle has been? Oh gosh, that is a great question. You know, I, I think we're pretty fortunate and I, we, I, certainly me in this role have stood on the shoulders of giants. We have people like Art Johnston as our founder, who's still, who's still very involved in our work, who's, who's helped create this organization that has power that people listen to. And so I, I think that's one. Another area I think we're, we're very fortunate and lucky at is, is there an understanding now that the work is not done? And people may not always yeah. know what it is. There is an understanding that the work is not done. So I would say um, that, uh, you know, our, our, our probably two biggest challenges are, one, 
reminding people that no matter what you're hearing on the national landscape, we need to help focus on creating a better Illinois. Yeah. There's this narrative that like, oh my gosh, we've got anti-LGBTQ people on a national landscape and national leadership roles. What do we do about that? And what I remind people is the injustices that I told you about, that I heard from people across the state of Illinois, those are stories that we were hearing far before the 2016 election. So there are many ways in which we're not we're not really equal in our own state. And we're reminding people that we should be putting out the fire that's coming out through the Twitterverse, but we also actually need to be investing in creating a stronger, more equal Illinois that can serve as a model for what the rest of the country could be. Yeah. I would say there's that, and then just, you know, good hard coalition work. We've we've <laughs> yeah. committed to um to being to strengthening our efforts to work in partnership with other communities and other community groups and uh, and that can be slow, deliberate work. And we think it's important, but it does, it, it can be challenging. Yeah. And, you know, we're in, in Illinois, which is by most accounts, a really progressive state. And if there's this much work to be done here, imagine, right. you know, we have a lot of people listening who are all over the world, um, particularly within the United States. And um, it's the grassroots effort is what's going to make the, the big picture change. So, getting involved in the things that are important to you um, in your own towns and in your own cities yes. are is absolutely crucial. Um, as you were traveling the country, Brian, and, and you've been, you guys, we're going to have links on the website, but there's YouTube video links to some really great speeches Brian's given. And I can tell you, they'll get you up in your chair pretty excited. <laughs> but as you've gone, gone through this, what if you can even pick, what has been the most memorable moment or the greatest joy that you're just like overwhelmingly proud of? Wow. Um, I remember um, it was at the end of May. It was on May 31st of last year, so of 2017. Um, we had been working to get a really critical bill that would um, allow people to uh, update the gender marker on their birth certificate without going through search. Uh, we've been working in great partnership with leaders like the ACLU of Illinois and AIDS Foundation of Chicago. And we've gotten bipartisan support for this bill in the Illinois House of Representatives. And it was really close in the Senate. And for these last few minutes, we didn't know how it was gonna go. And watching our champion fellow senators uh, work the room of their, of their fellow senators, watching our transgender stakeholders talk to their representatives, talk to the people in power. And at the last minute at 9.30 at night, seeing the vote come through uh, that uh, that this bill would be passed just made me so incredibly proud of of the work that we're doing, but also that, that we get to do this work in deep partnership with so many other people and that it really does take a community of activists and leaders who really drive change to, to achieve. That's cool. I'll bet that was a really extraordinary moment, especially if you thought maybe after all that hard work, it wasn't going to pass. Right. At the last minute, we, 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 we weren't sure we had the votes. Wow. That's a, that's intense. So I'm going to shift focus just a little bit to you. You know, the, the podcast is about bravery. And I mean, I feel like at least from what I know of you as an adult, from your adult life, it's pretty much your, that's, that's your game, right? That's your jam is facing, facing fears, both internally and externally. How do you personally, how do you stay grounded um, when there's all this 
chaos and all this work to be done. Yeah, I remember, mm, it would have been, a gosh, my mid-20s, late 20s, and I was working uh, in, in education justice in Los Angeles, and I was just getting burnt out. I mean, it just seemed that it was always a fight. There was always stress. We were always working to, to raise the money we needed. We were always trying to make sure we, we did the work that we were accomplishing, and I didn't see a way that this was going to peter out or reach a plateau. And I remember reading this book called the Bhagavad Gita, which is something I read in college, this ancient Indian uh, religious text that has influenced people from Tolstoy to Martin Luther King to Gandhi. And in it, it talks about uh, the fact that a man of justice or a person of justice has a right to his own actions, but not to the fruits of those actions. So act for action's sake. And what it what it really crystallized for me is that there's so much we can do to try to produce the result we want. But at the end of the day, that is not fully in our control. So we can't act like we don't care. We can't throw up our hands and just say whatever will be, will be. But at the end of the day, what we can control is the actions we, we engage in. And then to let the result kind of give, give that up and let that happen as it may, with the belief that whatever result happens in the short term, you can rally afterwards. And so that has been helpful to me um, after time, that if I'm going to stay in this work, not for one year or two years, not for 20 years, but for 40 years or 50 years or 60 years, that I have to remember that at the end of the day, I don't have full control of this and I can only focus on on what I can do. That That's that's intense. That's really, really powerful. I mean, it goes for all of us all the time. And there's something really empowering about letting go of the result and just being part of the process and in the moment. From what I know of you, I think that's how you live your life kind of across the board. Would you, is that on point? Y- yes. And it's taken you, a lot of work. And you're it's a control freak. Let's be honest. I am. <laughs> I, I, I am. I remember the first or the second time we talked, I was like, here are all the things that I think are important. Um, <laughs> So uh, so it is not my natural inclination. And, and I think that is why reading that text and holding on to it has been so important to me because it is a, it is something I need to practice and work on, uh, work on every day. I love that. How do you spend your free time, right? Like you're out fighting the good fight all the time. How do you, how do you relax? Um, I, you know, my, my husband, Toby, just reminds me and everybody around me that I am a, I am a quirky guy. So I do a couple things to relax. So first of all, <laughs> is um, I wake up really early so that I could spend a few hours to myself in the morning. So that means uh, I, I wake up, I have a cup of coffee, I'll read the news, I work out almost every every morning, I do a little bit of my own writing every morning. So I have these couple hours where I just get really grounded in things that are separate from my work, that are connected to who I am. So. That's one big thing. The other thing is when I'm home with Toby at night or at the end of the week, if we've been traveling, I really try to put everything away, the phone down and just spend time with him. I get a lot of energy from from spending time with my husband and connecting with other members of my family. And then I'm a big reader. Like I, I yeah. get energy from reading. I get ideas from reading. And I think it makes me a better leader. I get my mind out of my own stuff and, and read history, novels, smart people's writings, just just things that give me energy. Yeah, I always say that it's important to spend a little time every day learning something. Yes, yes. What would you say your favorite book is? Oh, that constantly changes. Uh, so I'll give you I'll give you 
my standard answer, and then I'll tell you a, a new one that's blown me away. <laughs> Fair enough. So my standard answer, and it's still true to this day, is this wonderful book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. It's written by Annie Dillard. She wrote it when she was 23 years old in early 1970, won the Pulitzer for it. And she just chronicles her year, the year after she graduated from college, uh, living in a small rural community in southwestern Virginia, noticing the world around her. Uh, it is so beautifully written. Uh, she talks a lot about what she's learned from nature. And it just is a reminder to me that there is magic and wonder and, and uniqueness in the everyday world around me. And it reminds me, I try to read it about every year, to slow down and look around. It doesn't have to be just nature, but to look around in the world around me. That's, so I, I love that one. I love um, that. I studied Annie Dillard in college. I oh my gosh! English yeah, degree. yeah. My oh my gosh, she's my amazing. advisor was was obsessed with her. But oh yeah, it's a great. I read everything she's written. She is amazing. I also just read for the first time, cover to cover, "Souls of Black Folk" by W. E. B. Du Bois, oh, and wow. I was was similarly blown away with it. It is so beautifully written, and knowing where it's coming from at a time in our country where the case had to be made for full equal treatment uh, and, and, and inclusivity of, of African-American people. It is just a powerfully written book and a book that is just grounded in love for his fellow African-American brothers and sisters in this country. Those are really great book recommendations. We'll have links to all of those. Yeah. Um, but I know you are an avid, avid reader, so it's always fun to hear what the smart folks out there are reading, you know, not that we're not all smart, but right, the people yeah. out there doing the work. And, and we, there are so many people who, you know, we don't have the time. We're so busy and we're so overwhelmed. And you're such a great example. Like, clearly you're busy. And yet you find time for quiet and for journaling and for reading and for connecting. I love that you cut it off when it's family time. Yeah. Um, we so much we so many people get in their heads and they think I have to be available all the time, but that doesn't save the world, right? No, no, it doesn't at all. I mean, um, my my husband is a NASCAR fan, and I always, you know, I always think e even race cars have to come into to pit road a couple times <laughs> a race, right? Like, and and we are the greatest tools that we have in this work and in this fight, and if we're not actually taking care of that tool. Both our, our physical bodies, our mental energy, our spiritual connections, our, our emotional well-being, if we're not taking care of that on a regular basis, then we are um, allowing the best tool we have in this work uh, to run itself ragged. And nobody would do that. Nobody would do that in racing. Nobody right. would do that in a factory. Nobody would do that in anything else. Why we give ourselves permission to neglect and overuse and abuse our greatest tool is, is beyond me. So how do you stay on point throughout the day? Like you go, 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 you travel all the time. Are there any, any systems or practices that really keep you so that you're functioning, you know, on all cylinders and then able to take care of yourself when it's time to shut down? Yeah, I, I, I wish I had good tools for this. I should probably be listening to more of your podcast. <laughs> uh, so I, I try to do, um, um, I mean, a, a couple of, I would say, life hacks that I have. So I, I am a big believer in making an action plan for the week, but you know, it's a laundry list of things that need to get done. But at the top of it, I pick the three to five, what I call big rocks, the things that absolutely have to get done at the end of the week. And so 
if I get lost in everything, I could just pick my head up and say, have I, have I moved the ball forward on those three things? It's a good one. I do meetings whenever I can in 25 and 50 minute increments. It sounds silly, but what that does is it gives me five minutes or 10 minutes every hour to like run to the restroom, grab a snack, go for a quick walk. Um, I try not to do the full 30 minutes or the full 60 minute meetings. So I get these little mini breaks throughout the day. I think that's really, really brilliant. Yeah. I'm so going to borrow that. That's good. I stole that from somebody and it has been great. So I love that. And then I would say my, my third life hack, it just ha- kind of happens at a, during the week, but I block off on my calendar, literally sits in my calendar, Monday mornings before 11 and Friday afternoons after 2.30. And Monday mornings before 11 are to like really think and prep for the week. And Fridays after 2.30 are to get all the stuff done that I didn't get done over the week. And when I started doing that and keeping that time as sacred as possible, I stopped working on weekends as much because I wasn't like scrambling on Saturday and Sunday to do all the stuff that I didn't get done during the week and to prep for the next week. I knew I had this baked in time every week. Uh, that literally sits on my calendar like an appointment. And that has been really, really helpful. Those are really, really, really great tips. All of them. I I love that. I, I block out time, but I'd never thought of it sort of as a start to the week and a close to the week. I think that's... I think that's it's been really helpful. helpful. Yeah. yeah. Moving back a little bit to the, to the work that you've been doing, Brian, is there one story, because I know you have thousands of them, but is there one story that you've come across of bravery and the people that you're working with and helping that just really, really spoke to you? Yes. Uh, it, it is both one story and many in that I've heard this same story over and over again. And it is the story almost every time I hear I am brought to tears, which is, you know, the story of straight cisgender parents, so parents who are not trans, who have the same gender that they identify with as the one that they were born, who are raising trans students and kids. Um, And this experience, I mean, I remember one parent told me, you know, we thought my child was going through a phase and the gender that they assigned to the child at birth because of his biology was, was male. But throughout his young childhood, she was constantly presenting as a female and wanting to engage in, in, you know, dressing up and whatnot. And she was in preschool and then in kindergarten getting very, very sad and just really depressed for a five-year-old kid. And they had this big fight going to kindergarten graduation where they made her wear a suit and tie. And she was just so devastated. And so she went to kindergarten graduation and then they went afterwards to lunch with the grandparents and the aunts and uncles. And she excused herself to the bathroom and came back with a dress on. Mm -hmm. She had worn a dress underneath her suit and tie. And the father who had no idea, you know, what to do just said in that moment, like, who am I to force my child be uh, somebody else? And I don't understand and I don't know what to do, but I'm gonna do whatever it takes to make sure that my daughter feels loved and supported and has what she needs. And just choosing love and uncertainty over ideology and belief and certainty uh, was just, it's its beautiful. And I hear yeah. stories like that all the time. They're pow- I'm with you. I'm teary too. I, yeah. all, all of these episodes make me teary. These stories are so extraordinary. Um, 
Yes. There, I, I have a, a number of friends who have um, either non-binary or, or transgender children. And, um, and my own children, it's so extraordinary to me how easy and comfortable it is for them to accept and not assume. It's more difficult for all of us as grownups. Um, That's right. Even in the LGBTQ community, I think right. there's a lot of trouble. But my little ones, so we're watching MasterChef Junior because one of my daughter's classmates is, is in it, which is super oh, cool, wow. right? I know, yeah. it's cool. Well, there's another child that happens to be a local child that's in it as well. And, you know, they, they break them down into groups. They break them down into a girls group to compete and then a boys group to compete. Well, this child did not look like a girl. Um, and to this day, I don't know if this child was born a boy and transitioning to a girl or born a girl and transitioning to a boy or just non-conforming. But my kids immediately referred to that child as them when talking about the show. And there was, mm-hmm. there was no, you know, there was no struggle for them there. And I, that moved me deeply because um, there's so much hope, right? When our younger kids... This can just be so easy for them to accept people as they are and to have a whole new gender, you know, pronoun norm and all of that is, um, it's really cool. It's fun to watch. I agree. I agree. So on that note, one of the things that I love to ask people, because I think that celebration is like a really important part of our, of our lives and our human existence. How do you like to celebrate success of, of any kind? Mm. I mean, first of all, I I love that you say celebration is important because I I think in this work where we're so immersed in the understanding that there's much to do and we never fully arrive. Like, I mean, we may have gotten that win that I told you about on the Senate floor, but we still have to make sure that the governor signed that bill. And we still had a huge summer outreach campaign to be able to launch in the next couple of weeks. And so it's really hard to like appreciate those wins. But we, we remind ourselves here that, you know, if we don't celebrate our wins, then they're not going to be worth having after yeah, a while. Absolutely. And so I don't know if I have a standard way. I mean, one is um, um, I really like to make sure we acknowledge it. I mean, we, we have a, a culture here on our staff where every week we get together as a full team um, and we start it with shout outs and celebrations of each other. That's nice. Uh, and, you know, we just like to make sure that we are constantly on the lookout for those those little victories um so i think that's probably the the most important you know for me i also like to celebrate by giving myself some distance i love a friday night date night with a martini i love going on vacations i mean those are important because it's important to me um to connect to other parts of my identity that are separate albeit connected, but separate from being a social justice leader, yeah. uh, because it makes me a fuller, more holistic leader when I do uh, operate in this space. Yes, so many yeses. It's so good. It's so good. You're right, though, that whole person that goes back to that whole person and taking care of who you are. And I so think it's important to celebrate. Um, it's that motivation train, right? If you right. If you aren't stopping to recognize that the work you've done is worth celebrating, it's really hard to keep pushing. Right. Why would you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There, we have this culture, though, that doesn't. My coach and friend, Aaron Anastasi, said that celebration is a lost discipline. And I think mm-hmm. if we look at it as a discipline, one to implement in our lives, just like, you know, 
blocking off Monday mornings and Friday afternoons, then we can build that muscle up, I think, a little bit more. As you know, and now anybody who's been listening to this show or anybody who's known me forever, I am passionate about charitable organizations and giving. Um, I It's just a, a huge part of my core value and who I am. And when I created this podcast, it, I wanted to connect people with um, organizations that were powerful to them and share that with the world. Now, we obviously know that Equality Illinois is important to you, but other than that, what is your favorite charitable organization to support? This is so hard because there are so many that are doing such great work. And I I, I really get that in the ecosystem, right? That there's not just one group out there that's responsible for disproportionate change. It's, it's uh, We operate in uh, in an ecology that, that works together. But I think in part because of the impact that's had on, on my experience mm-hmm. and in part because I think a, a service to a national ideal and building relationships across lines of difference are so important right now. I honestly think like the service organizations are really important yeah. for me. That was Teach for America. Yeah. There's City Year. There's AmeriCorps. There are lots of them. But uh, so the one that I love is is the one that I'm so deeply connected to, which is Teach for America. Yeah. But but this idea that one um, that we have a collective duty and responsibility to our broader country, I think, is super super important. And two, um, that we can drive toward justice by building relationships with people who don't share our identity. And maybe that's simply like, maybe we're going back and working in our own community, but we're going back with a college degree and working across an education line of difference. Maybe we're working across a geography line of distance or an ideology or a race, or, I mean, there could be a host of things. Like there's never, we never approach anyone with 100% similarity. But these these efforts that call us to service grounded in a relationship across a line of difference, I think weave us together to be a stronger, more robust country. Yes. I've said that about a thousand times in this yeah. interview. I'm the same when asked what organization. There are many. And I kind of have a general rule that I, I almost always say yes. I don't always have a lot to give. But... If, so, if I'm approached, I find a way to do what I can do. Yeah. Um, so yeah. we're going to have information about Teach for America up if people want to um, support that and be connected. And obviously, Equality Illinois um, and all of the amazing work that you're doing. To take us out on the show, let's regroup with the three words we opened up with. I'd ask Brian to define himself and his story in three words. Would you share your words with us again, Brian? Sure. Persistent, lucky, and listening. I love that you say lucky. I think you've worked pretty hard for your luck, but yeah. but you consider yourself blessed. I know you do. I do. Uh, Michael Lewis, who wrote Moneyball, among other things, has this great speech he gave on luck. Um, and, and the way that I think about luck is uh, like a spark. There is so much that you could do to create fertile ground for luck to appear. And there's so much that you could do to capture luck once it has manifested in your life. But you can't force luck. And so I work really hard to build relationships or work really hard and and do the work that needs to do to make it more likely that luck will play out. And, and once opportunities come my way, I try to grab them and hold on to them and make the most out of them. But at the end of the day, I can't produce that spark of luck. And when I think about getting into college, when I think about teaching in Baton Rouge, when I think about the fact that I met my husband on a layover in O'Hare 
Like these were amazing blessings in my life uh, that didn't have to happen. And, uh, and I, I, I'm incredibly lucky. So am I, I'm lucky that I get to be your friend and Toby's friend. And, um, just to have, I'm so honored to have you on the show and to have you in my life and you are doing really, really brave work that it's changing the world. So thank you, Brian, so much for being here and for everything that you do. Oh my gosh, Heather, thank you for having me on this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you all so much for being here. What a treat it was to have Brian on the show and share his story with all of you. I am confident it inspired you and motivated you just as much as it did me. Thank you again for joining us for The Brave Files. We'll see you next week. And as always, remember to choose bravely. You've been listening to The Brave Files, stories of people living courageously. Visit us at thebravefilespodcast.com to learn more about the show, find our show notes, and access full episode transcripts. And we'd love to know what you think of the show. We invite you to connect with us via Instagram and send a DM. You'll find us at The Brave Files Podcast on Instagram. Our music was created and produced in a custom collaboration with Matt Lewis from ML Creative Consulting, a boutique firm dedicated to helping clients identify their unique sound and amplify their brand with custom-delivered soundtracks. Special thanks to everyone on Team Brave, from our audio engineer to our producers, associate producers, copy editors, writers, and support team. The show wouldn't exist without them, and we are eternally grateful. I'm your host and executive producer, Heather Vickery. Thanks for tuning in.